As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Hello and welcome to the Athletic Soccer Show, where we are talking Arsenal today. One of the most fascinating clubs in European football, I think, this season. The bounce back, it's been an incredible season for Arsenal fans and the twists and turns do not look like they're going to be ending anytime soon. My name is Jack Collins and I'll be your host today. And I'm joined by Arsenal writer for The Athletic, Art De Roche. Art, thank you so much for jumping on The Athletic show, Soccer Show. Welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me. I hope uh, everyone who's listening is doing well. And um, yeah, it's been quite an intense few weeks, as I'm sure we'll get into. So yeah, thanks for having me. No, it's a, a real pleasure, a real pleasure. I'm really excited to be talking Arsenal. I feel like we've gone to talk about Arsenal a couple of times and every time the narrative has shifted week <laughs> to week, depending on on where the club have been, where everyone's feeling. And imagine the fan base are going through a roller coaster of emotions. But as an Arsenal writer, it must be incredibly difficult to kind of gauge that mood at the moment because it changes so often. Yeah, I think um, it's interesting how the past week has been the mood. Uh, there was almost like a panic after the Manchester City game because there had been a slide in terms of results. And um, also, if you look at the performances, I think what made it very w- a weird time was the fact that Arsenal weren't being blown away in the games that they were losing and drawing. They were almost just slightly off and they were uh, punished for it. And uh, I think you almost saw an amalgamation of that in the first half against Aston Villa. And that was almost their their breaking point where they needed to to respond. And um, thankfully they did. And now you've seen, <laughs> I guess, the, uh, the other side of the extreme where everyone has that hope again, um, especially after the Manchester City results. So it is quite a difficult one to manoeuvre at the minute, but one thing that maybe helps is the fact that um, Arsenal have been quite consistent. You can see what was going wrong in terms of just not doing things they had been 
for the the whole first half of the season uh, in those games against Everton, Brentford and Manchester City. And then when they started to do those things again against uh, Aston Villa in the second half, you, you finally saw, okay, they can they can get those wins again. And mentally, I think um, Saturday afternoon would have been massive for them. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, look, Arsenal have dropped points six times across the course of the league season so far. They've played 23 games, three draws, three losses. Three of those drop points, two losses and a draw, have been, as you say, in the last couple of weeks. But I think that's interesting because the only loss prior to the Everton and City games was that game against Manchester United at Old Trafford, which I think was a, a really, really good game. But one of those that if Arsenal had won, no one would have come out the other side of that being like, Arsenal didn't deserve to take something away from that game. It was just the way that it played out, really played into Manchester United's hands. And also it was a kind of the start of the spark for United's current run of form. You look at the way that Arteta has kept this squad this season. It's been relatively solid. There haven't been many changes. We saw a little bit of tinkering for that Manchester City game that didn't necessarily work. Is that consistency been a major key to actually this Arsenal success story and all and or I suppose in, in many ways because it's not one or the other? <laughs> Is it a slight weakness in depth that's facilitating that at the same time rather than you know being kind of necessity rather than choice? Both can be true, I feel. Um, <laughs> and that's not me trying to sit on the fence. I, I genuinely believe that the consistency of the lineup was massive in the first half of the year, um, especially with how specific Arteta's demands are in certain positions. I think the the player who probably embodies that the most is uh, Alexander Zinchenko. I'm not going to say at left back because he basically plays as an all-rounder. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so you've got him. You've also got Ben White. So if you actually look at Arsenal's squad, you can probably say in a way, their fullbacks, the way their fullbacks play, show you how um, specific Arteta is because you never would have thought Ben White would be playing right back for half a season last year. But what he's been doing by being able to overlap, being able to come inside and just offer another body, but also have really good technical ability has been massive. Then on the other side, Zinchenko is very different. So on that side of things, the consistency has definitely helped. But I do feel you probably would have wanted a stronger bench in a lot of those games. Whereas even if we think back a year ago, so the second half of last season, it wasn't too uncommon to see uh, under 23s players like Amari Hutchinson, Charlie Patino, uh, Mika Bierov on the bench for six, seven, possibly even eight games. Um, yeah. And then that trend kind of continued to the start of this season um, where Mario Cozia Dubri and other under-21s players been on the bench multiple times. And I think the, the game at Villa was probably the strongest bench Arsenal have had all season and it's February. <laughs> so you'd hope that... Um, Players like Smith Rowe, um, Nelson, Gabriel Jesus in a few weeks as well come back and just fill up that bench a bit more so that uh, they can be a bit more comfortable and uh, have a bit more rotation, even if it is 
in game. So early substitutions, for instance, um, I think that will be massive. Yeah, I think it's it's really interesting. Obviously, one of the narratives that always surrounds Pep is this kind of tinkering with formations, tinkering with players in different roles, trying to outplay or outmaneuver his opponent tactically in many ways. And there's been much made similarly in this mix of master and apprentice in in Pep and Arteta this season. And so I thought it was interesting that we saw the Tomiyasu change in the Manchester City game, which felt like a tactical switch as opposed to being forced into a, a manoeuvre by injury in the in the kind of Gabi Jesus scenario. It felt like he was like, right, I, w- I want Tomiyasu to shackle down that side. And it didn't pay off. And it does feel like one of those where you've now seen it. We've seen Arteta try it. Gone, okay, no, I'm not doing that again. And it was sort of back to, <laughs> back to form for that Villa game. Yeah, it was interesting because um, I don't feel like anybody was up in arms about Tommy Asu's start in that game. Um, It was, yeah, it seemed like a logical decision um, because Tommy Asu's better in the air. Uh, He's probably uh, more suited to building up from deep as well, but he just didn't really have an opportunity to do that because of how aggressive City were pressing. And then uh, in the air, he did okay, but then... City just had so many players around uh, that area that it almost didn't make that big a difference. So going into the Villa game, you could see, I mean, even in the Manchester City game in the second half, you saw when Ben White came on, uh, Saka just had uh, so much more support on that right-hand side in attack. Um, And that was very necessary against Villa. I think uh, in the first 10 minutes or so, there's a moment just after they concede where Jorginho is yelling at White to stay wide, to push wide. And then Arteta tells him the same thing about two minutes later. And then within minutes, uh, Jorginho is clipping balls over the top for for White, who's on the overlap. So um, you just saw, I guess, how important um, having that extra person uh, coming into the attack is. With, with Benjamin White and um, it's again not a slight on Tomiyasu but the job that White has done so far this season I don't think anyone would have predicted how well it's gone um, and you can't really shake that up too much I, I feel like his form did dip a little bit before um, he was replaced by Tomiyasu um, so against Everton for instance he was not that good uh, I don't feel but uh Again, back back in form after the Villa game, I thought he was one of Arsenal's better performers. So hopefully both himself and the team can take that momentum into Leicester this weekend. Yeah, I mean, we're going to come on a little bit later to the kind of idea of rotation. And I want to talk a little bit about Arsenal's Europa League campaign and actually the platform that it might provide for certain players. But we'll come back to that because I think you look at this Aston Villa game at the weekend and it looked like a major potential banana skin for Arsenal in, in so many different ways. Not only was it the early kickoff on Saturday, which is notoriously hard to predict, as any person with a betting account will tell you. But generally, I think you, you look at this and you think, OK, 
You've come off a loss to Everton, a draw against Brentford, slightly unlucky in, in terms of the decisions, but across the balance of play, I thought a draw was probably a fair result. And I say that as a Fulham fan who really never wants Brentford to get anything out of anything. Um, <laughs> and then the loss to Manchester City. And then suddenly you're playing a former manager away from home in the early kickoff. And everyone is looking at this and going, right, the City are favourites for the title again. The momentum has swung. The pendulum has gone the other way. And Arsenal go behind twice in the first half in this game and manage to dig out a win with, you know, a 4-2 probably looks a little bit more comfortable than it actually was given, given the fourth goal. But to come out the right side of that result, to get a last-minute winner... I don't think it can be underplayed how important that will be for not just kind of getting the points on the board and getting the lead again. And obviously what happened to City happened, but actually the fact that the players will believe that they are able to dig themselves out of these situations over and over again. Yeah, I think it was massive, not just because uh, it ended up being 4-2. It wasn't the first time they've done that this season. Um, early games against... Uh, Fulham, <laughs> you're Fulham, if you remember, that, yeah. at the Emirates when Gabriel makes that mistake on the ball and Mitrovic uh, puts you guys in front and they, they're they able to fight back. I think Erdegaard was really key on that day uh, in terms of getting Arsenal back in front or getting Arsenal level, at least, and then Gabriel scored. They also had a moment, um, a little wobble against Aston Villa at home this season when uh, they were 1-0 up, uh, Douglas Louise scored from a corner and then yeah, yeah. Martinelli scores about two, three minutes later. So they have had little moments like this before where there's been a little wobble and they've responded. So it was good to see that they were still able to stick in those games and respond. Um, obviously, they found that more difficult against Everton uh, and Manchester City. But what was encouraging was I feel... You haven't really seen them suffocate teams of pressure since they beat Manchester United, where it was almost like a battering in that second half, similar to what they did uh, when they beat Chelsea at Stamford Bridge yep. earlier in the season. Um, and I feel like the second half at Villa was very reminiscent of those games where they had probably, if I count, maybe four, possibly even five really big moments. Um, they didn't they didn't take all those chances in those moments. So there was um, Eddie Nketiah who, who had a one-on-one and he, he shot over, over the bar. Eddie Nketiah again, winning the ball off Ezri Konza and setting it to Martin Odegaard who misses pretty much an open goal. Um, but the big thing was the moments kept coming and when moments went in Aston Villa's way, they also stood up defensively. Gabriel made a, a massive tackle uh, one-on-one against Leon Bailey. And then also Aaron Ramsdale tipping Leon Bailey's um, shot a few minutes later onto the crossbar. So there were those moments where you could call it luck if you want, but the moments went Arsenal's way uh, more often than not. And they just kept coming, kept coming. And that's when... You get that moment with uh, Jorginho, who I thought was Arsenal's best player uh, throughout the 90 minutes. Uh, very, very brave on the ball and help, definitely helped them kind of take control of that second half. So, um, yeah, I, I don't think it can be understated in terms of how big a moment that was. You saw it with 
how how mental the celebrations were both in the away end and in the dugout um but the big thing is not the first time Arsenal have responded to adversity this season and it can't be the last time either yeah absolutely absolutely I mean look you've mentioned Jorginho there he was one of two signings brought in in the January transfer window. The other, Leandro Trossard, got off the mark in, in the game before or in the Brentford game. And you look at these kind of signings, that's a massive moment for Jorginho. Yes, the goal won't go down for him, but it was a really impressive performance, as you say, and he's forced the error for, for the own goal, if you will. Trossard's off the mark as well. I think he's been relatively sharp in the cameos that he's provided so far for Arsenal. These felt like, sensible signings they maybe weren't the world beating signings that Arsenal fans might have been hoping for but Jorginho to come in and especially in a team that's so ball dominant in games where Arsenal are going to be on the front foot and knocking the ball around in the opposition half as you say suffocating teams Jorginho is such a wonderful player to have in that kind of system because the ball never stops moving he continually conducts play and Trossard feels that someone who can come in and hit the ground running in terms of Premier League experience, knows where the back of the net is in this division and can make a, a difference when, when it matters most. And when you look at those signings compared to, you know, some of the dealings, obviously Chelsea have become the benchmark for January signings <laughs> with, with the amount that they did. But actually, you think about some of those signings, you're like, risk, risk risk and I feel like with Arsenal signings there feels like a far less of an element of risk in there because they've brought in players who I think augment this title charge rather than potentially have the ability to spark it but also could go either way. Yeah risk is a really good word I feel because Arsenal this was probably the first maybe second window no actually I'll say first window where they weren't going out and looking specifically for someone to come straight into the first 11, which they probably have been doing for the last 20 years, really. Um, and that's a really unique position to be in, I feel, because um, oftentimes, I guess the the stereotypical one for Arsenal, uh, especially in the late kind of Wenger years, was they need a DM to come in and start straight away. That's, that wasn't the case. They just needed someone who could really uh, supplement Arteta's style, knew what was going on, and could just be an aide, really, rather than someone who needed to come in and make an impact straight away, even though these two players have done that. So it, again, took a little bit of the risk away. Uh, obviously, Jorginho and Trossard weren't the number one options, uh, it was well documented that uh, Caicedo from Brighton and uh, Mudrik from Shakhtar Donetsk were the guys that Arsenal were going after in terms of first choices in those positions. But it's almost like the signings that Liverpool were making around 2018, 2019, just beefing up that squad um, so that you're able to rotate accordingly, uh, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a while. Um, but also you see, I guess, one thing that has been mentioned by Arteta is if you look at the signings they were making 18 months ago, in that summer window of 2021, every player they signed was 23 years old or younger. Because now that... And also they had two, three, maybe four youth uh, players come up from the academy, Saka, Enketia, Smithrow, 
And maybe if you want to add Nelson in there too, Martinelli was only 6 million when he was 18 years old. So you already had a really young squad. You don't really need to add more youth now. Um, you can afford to, to not gamble, but look at slightly older players who you know can hit the ground running, as you said. And uh, I don't think Villa away was Trossard's best performance for Arsenal mm-hmm. so far, um, but he has been very sharp in the sub appearances that he's made uh, before that. And Jorginho, as we mentioned, was very good at, at Villa, but also against Manchester City. I thought they're not the perfect players. Um, we see that with Jorginho's, um, I guess, lack of athleticism. Um, Physicality, we always talk about. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, they they improved the squad uh, and that's what Arsenal needed to do this January. Do you like Formula One but struggle to keep up with everything that's going on? Then we have the podcast for you. Introducing the Race F1 Briefing, the podcast that brings you the latest F1 headlines in 15 minutes or less. With new episodes dropping on all four days of every race event, you'll never miss out on hearing what went down in practice, qualifying or the Grand Prix itself. And we'll also bring you all the behind the scenes news and gossip from the F1 paddock as well. If that sounds like the F1 podcast for you, search the Race F1 Briefing in your podcast app of choice. We'd love to have you join us. I think especially with Jorginho, the other thing you're bringing in here is experience and it takes us nicely onto the kind of final point about the Premier League for for now in that the question with Arsenal this season has never been can they challenge for the title or at least hasn't been since your November or so. It's been Arsenal are in this title race and, and no one doubts that. The question has been have Arsenal got the metal both physically and mentally to get over the line and actually go and win a title and the kind of difficult thing about this question is you can never say for certain until it's won. And (laughs) it's one of those where you go, do Arsenal have the capacity to win the title? I don't know, because I've not seen this (laughs) Arsenal side in this iteration. And Arsenal fans, I think, have struggled with this a little bit with people being like, yeah, but City are still favourites. You know, even a couple of weeks ago when Arsenal were seven points clear, game in hand, and people are thinking, okay, how does this pan out? And it looks, for all the world, in any other league where people are maybe less focused on on all the different aspects of it and have seen less of it, they'd be going, well, they're definitely favourites. Seven points clear with a game in hand would make you clear favourites for the title. The scheduling with the two City games not far away from each other doesn't help. And then there's this kind of capacity that fact that Arsenal fell away from the Champions League spots at the, the, la- the bad latter end of last year when it seemed to be in their hands will give people question. But I think Jorginho is a sensible signing in that regard because he has experience of getting things over the line. But I, I suppose I'd just be interested in, in your thoughts on this because it must be an incredibly hard thing to be able to try and talk about or cover <laughs> or write about when you're talking about something that hasn't happened in the lifespan of this current team. Do they have the capacity to go and win things? Yeah, pers- my personal, I guess, approach to those discussion points are just looking at, I guess, what has happened and the themes um, or the trends that have kind of come across. So um, rather than looking at, oh, can they do it? Because again, this is something I don't know if they can. Um, 
and I don't think Arsenal fans know, there's more a sense of enjoying the ride and being hopeful, um, which I think would take the pressure off. Um, but in terms of trends that either help or hinder a case, one thing, again, and this weekend was probably the best case study there could have been because no one would have predicted that Manchester City would drop points at Nottingham Forest. And then you look at the game. I obviously was at um, Villa Park, so I didn't watch the game live, but I watched Match of the Day and I watched the highlights back and I thought, how how on earth have, has Haaland missed that massive chance? Yeah. Foden somehow gets brain freeze when he should just be squaring the ball to Haaland. Um, there's these little moments uh, and I just feel... Like from an Arsenal perspective, the things that you look to are, and if we want to look at the Villa game again, um, they one thing they weren't doing in the first half was putting pressure on the ball like they usually do. It was way too easy for Villa to just stroll up the pitch, and that that Coutinho goal. There's no one putting pressure on the guy who receives the ball first, Bubakar Kamara. He's able to just waltz into the Arsenal uh, half, play a one-two, and and it's like it's just too easy. Um, whereas in the second half, and also the Ollie Watkins goal, sorry, um, ball over the top, Saliba's just kind of almost waiting for Watkins to make a decision. That that puts Watkins in control of the situation. Whereas in the second half, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he was a lot quicker to get tight and engage the ball. So. There were actually, I could probably count two, three, maybe even four examples where he does get tight to Watkins straight away. Sometimes he doesn't win the ball. Sometimes he does. And that leads to counterattacks for Arsenal. So it's all about staying in control, keeping your foot in the gas and being able to suffocate teams like they did earlier in the season. So those are the signs that I will be looking for personally when kind of that discussion point of do Arsenal have what it takes um, to do it? Those are the things I look look for rather than just being like, yes or no. Because <laughs> yeah. uh, nobody knows uh, and it will change week by week, I feel. Yeah, I think you're right. It's kind of like the, the pendulum on it swings based on whether Arsenal are playing games on Arsenal's terms. And I think <laughs> yeah. that's, a, that's a nice way to kind of to look at it. If Arsenal are, and as they were in the second half, playing the game on the terms that they're dictating, there aren't many teams that can keep up with this Arsenal side. You know, City are probably the, the obvious example, maybe United given their sort of form in the last 20 games, shall we say. Um, but you kind of look at it and go, are there many teams that keep up? The answer is no. Arsenal outplay most teams in the Premier League relatively comfortably, I think, considering how good this squad has been so far, but only if they allow things to be played in their own terms. They didn't do that against Brentford either. And, and that's uh, that's going to be where the, the title is, is won and lost. And I think you kind of touched on an important point there about City and I know, you know, kind of swinging between the two in, in, in so many different ways, but it feels like that's the way the season is going in that, Normally, you'd kind of expect City to have the the metal to go off the back. And what we saw last year where they got that big win, they got their noses in front, and then they won, what, 11 games in a row in order mm-hmm. to secure the title? And you were thinking, OK, they've beaten Arsenal now at the Emirates. That's a massive win. 
for City in terms of where they are in the title race. They know Arsenal still have to come to the Etihad. If they can keep the points gap level until then, they'll have the edge in terms of goal difference and, and probably the momentum and courage to, to kind of go for it. So then drop points immediately, I think, is a, a symbol of where the City side are. They still have the capacity to be brilliant, but they also have far more of the capacity to just not get things over the line this year. And that might well fall into Arsenal's court in a nice way because Arsenal feel like that Villa game, that they are and they do have the capacity to get things over the line, especially when they really, really need it. It also comes down to how competitive the league is this season, I think. A lot of teams, there aren't many teams that are just sitting in mid-table not without much to play for. Um, you look at, I guess, the relegation battle, there's... You could probably go, go all the way up to maybe thirteenth, twelfth, and say, yeah. Yeah, 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 every team needs three points every weekend, and then you've got a genuine, probably, you, I would say, genuine fight for fourth place after you get past Manchester United, who I probably think uh, you can pro- confidently say will at least finish third. They're only three points off. City and five points off Arsenal. And then you've got teams like Fulham and Brentford who are above Chelsea and Liverpool. In And you can include Brighton in this conversation as well, um, who are in the mix for the Europa League qualification spot. So I, I feel it's just a signal of how strong the league is because, yes, you could say, okay, City may maybe having their own sort of wobble, but um, it's also how good other teams have been um, when playing against them. I mean, I don't think Forrest have lost at home since September. Uh, I could be, I could be wrong, but that's what I remember hearing in my head. So um, it's not as if they're just, <laughs> they're there kind of rolling over <laughs> for teams. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's the really interesting uh subplot to this um no one's just gonna lay down and let you (laughs) take three points um so again and that's another thing that kind of played into arsenal at the start of this season a lot of people were saying well they should be crystal palace away they should beat fulham they should be aston villa they should be brighton but traditionally they they have a really tough time at Selhurst Park <laughs> uh, and the Amex as well. And these are obstacles that they've been able to, to get past this year, which they haven't done previously. So um, I do feel people, again, and when I say people, I don't mean everyone, but um, when the general kind of discussions are had, I do feel that, those bits of context are forgotten sometimes as well. Yeah, I I completely agree. And I I think this is one of those really interesting ones in that you're looking at the games here that that come up in in the Premier League now for Arsenal. And actually, March and the end of February on paper looks very possible for Arsenal to go and, and, (laughs) and, and get a run of wins together. You know, Leicester away, then Everton at home, Bournemouth at home, Fulham away, Palace at home, Leeds at home. Like one, you know, four of those games, four of the six games are at the Emirates, which has been a happy hunting ground for Arsenal this season. And you kind of look at that and you're going, right, if you go to the 1st of April, 
how many more games are you looking at, you know, towards the end of the season? It's not all that much, is it? You know, you're then looking at seven, eight games left and suddenly, it, you know, City have, have a tough march, for example, it really does open the gap up. But as you say, there are no easy games. And I know that's the world's biggest cliche. And I appreciate that it's one of those. But I think you're right in terms of the Premier League hasn't been divided off this season into a kind of haves and have nots. There is not mm. a breakaway top seven and then a comfortable seven and then a six scrapping at the bottom. There are eight, nine teams at the bottom still fighting for their life. And, and I think it's mad to think that, you know, you're looking at Crystal Palace in 12th. <laughs> And they're what six points ahead yeah. of that's, West Ham, and, and they haven't won thing. in 2023. I think, again, when I say people, I don't mean to just generalize, but I feel so many people just when people think five points, it seems a lot bigger than it actually is. Five points can be gone in the space of a week, and that's what, um. I feel people need to realize sometimes um, when talking about those point gaps, those differences, they can be gone like that. Uh, and it, it can be down to a few different factors, but that's why you can't really just almost uh, predict things easily. <laughs> uh, like you see in the championship, for instance, with Middlesbrough, um, they they were twenty first when Michael Carrick took over. Now they're third. I know yeah. it's a different league, and that league that league is very much more uh, chaotic in terms of teams who look like they're bound for relegation in January can get up to the playoffs. Um, and I don't think that's particularly a bad thing. It, it's almost it makes it more interesting. So um, yeah, going into uh, the next, I guess, three months we've got left. Uh, 15 games for Arsenal. Uh, I think 14 for Manchester City. Um, yeah, I think that that side of things as well is going to make it very interesting. Yeah. I mean, I want to just change gears as our kind of last point and, and move on to the Europa League because Arsenal had a really important group win, I think. And, and maybe this has gone under the radar a little bit, but it wasn't an easy group that Arsenal had. And PSV Eindhoven had been in relatively good form I think generally at the start of the season they've dropped off a little bit now but over the course of what we saw at the beginning of the season it looked like a tricky group you kind of see what's gone on there not only is there two extra games for them having come second in the group they're three nil down to Sevilla on aggregate and they are the masters of this competition Sevilla in so <laughs> many ways but you kind of look at that and go, okay, aside from the extra fixtures, the Europa League, I think, for Arsenal is clearly not the priority. And I don't think anyone will argue that it is when Arsenal are, are genuinely in a Premier League title hunt. But I do think it gives an interesting opportunity. And, you know, we're kind of circling back to what we talked about at the start of the podcast with, with Tommy Yasu here, in that Arsenal have a kind of secondary squad, if you will, in, in many ways, where there are players not getting minutes who are then expected to step in and make a difference when they do get on the pitch. And, you know, you mentioned players coming back from injury. You mentioned the likes of, of Reese Nelson. Not going to be a nailed-on starter. When Gabi Jesus comes back, you'd imagine he takes the centre-forward position back pretty straight on. And Eddie Nketiah is going to be looking for minutes. Now, Arsenal are, see, out of, of both club competitions. So what this does is it gives a, 
an interesting kind of dynamic to what's left in the Europa League. It goes, can Arsenal get into the, the kind of depths of this? Because one, trophies are trophies, right? And yes, Arsenal have had FA Cup success in recent years. But one of the things that keeps a club ticking and keeps them moving forward, and we saw this all the way back when Manchester City got taken over for the first time, and it was about sort of winning things. It didn't kind of matter what they are. It doesn't matter if it's a, a Carabao Cup. It doesn't matter if it's a community shield. You get trophies in the cabinet and you get people used to the the taste of winning and that kind of idea of getting into competitions to be in them right at the end. And the way that the Europa League is opening up, I think, is, is really, really interesting. Obviously, Barcelona and Manchester United play each other. Juventus look like they're in trouble against Nantes. Sporting are definitely in trouble against Michelin. And then you're kind of looking at the rest of them. You've got Shakhtar's, your Ajaxes, Monaco's, Sevilla, Roma... And then Arsenal and the two Spanish clubs, Betis and Real Sociedad. And that's a kind of nice draw that feels like everyone's on a bit of an even keel, if you will. There's no one there that you go, right, they're, they're outright favourites for the competition. It's going to be very, very interesting to see how it develops. But what I think might be most interesting from an Arsenal perspective is the Europa League as a tool to get minutes for the likes of Leandro Trossard, for the likes of Tommy Yasu, for the likes of Kieran Tierney, for the likes uh, of whoever kind of steps out of the midfield when Thomas Partey is back, whether that be Jorginho or Chaco, who's going through a little bit of a rough period, whether it gets Nketiah back in scoring form, if it gets Reese Nelson into the fold. All of these are big opportunities. And especially for someone like Fabio Vieira, who came in for a big, big fee in the summer, is clearly kind of seen as Erdegaard's understudy, a lovely player in, in so many ways. But you can't expect to drop him in cold if something's to happen to Edegaard <laughs> and expect him to suddenly fall into the trap of, of being able to play perfectly in the systems that Arsenal are looking for. And that's why I think the Europa League might well be of real interest to Mikel Arteta this year. Mm. Midfield was probably the, the biggest, I guess, area um, concerns, not the right word. I'll say that the area that was scrutinised most when um, Arteta rotated in the Europa League group stages uh, and also in the cup competitions earlier um, this calendar year. Um, you had probably Fabio Vieira coming in for Erdegaard was the obvious one. Tommy Asu for Ben White, another another obvious one. Rob Holden, Matt Turner, um, these guys come in. And then, but the, the thing that makes Arsenal tick is their midfield. And I think you saw... The, the the games that really stick out for this uh, are the away leg at PSV where they lost um, and the first hour of the game against Oxford United in the FA Cup, which would sound probably really weird because they won that game 3-0. Yeah. But experiencing that game in real time, um, the first hour you had Mo Mo Mohamed Elneny um at the base, Lokonga is a left eight, and the defense just didn't have anyone to bounce the ball off in midfield. They they were looking for people to find and couldn't find anyone. Um, and then as soon as, as Zinchenko and Jacka came on, Elneny any sta stayed on, but he had then had someone who was moving off the ball around him, and he had a lot more passing options um to make so it was those little little details where you just saw the difference um between the first string and the second string and you really hope that 
again when say Thomas Partey comes back from his injury and I guess it would be Jorginho that drops into that second string midfield that he is able to replicate what he did at Aston Villa and against Manchester City where he was brave on the ball and was able to keep things ticking because that's been the biggest ask for for Arsenal's second eleven, really. Um, and then you've got players like Fabio Vieira, who I think is very different to Martin Odegaard. He's much more of a kind of final third guy. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. He has a lot less touches during the game than Odegaard, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, I think his um, first start in the Premier League against Brentford, he had he out of the starting eleven, he had I think probably one of the fewest amounts of touches in that game, but still was able to make an impact with his goal, obviously. And he actually did play fairly well when he got the ball in more advanced positions too. So the big thing as well is just getting um, sharpness for these guys, because that would be a thing where if we talk about Tomiyasu, he was almost thrown into that Manchester City game. Cold. With... I, I I didn't want to say it, but <laughs> but um it, he played a few weeks ago uh, against Manchester United, but he'd only come on for forty five minutes at half time. So it was it wasn't the best kind of circumstances to make your first start in in a while. So yeah, you you want these guys to be sharp if if they're needed to be called upon in in the Premier League. Um, and also another guy that needs a, a big mention is Emil Smith-Rowe, I feel, because um, he he's almost the one who sparked Arsenal under Arteta on Boxing Day in 2020 when he, when he started against Chelsea and was the number 10 that Arsenal were kind of craving um, and obviously put a lot of Arsenal's good fortunes last year uh, came through him in the first half of the year where he was able to get in double figures for goals. So um, I think he's another one who personally I'm looking forward to seeing back. He was obviously on the bench against Aston Villa. Um, the game wasn't really one where you'd want to throw someone in after no. um, a little injury setback, but um, you'd hope that he's able to get eased back in into the fold. And I think he's one that, once he gets up and running, I wouldn't be surprised if he's starting games in the Premier League uh, come April or May um, to close close out a good, strong campaign. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's going to be very, very interesting. I'm sure there's going to be plenty of twists and turns in this Arsenal campaign yet. So I'm sure that this is a topic that we'll be circling back around to here on the Athletic Soccer Show. But for now, all that's left for me to do is say thank you so much, Mr. Art de Rocher, for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure, Art. Thanks for having me. I've been Jack Collins. This has been the Athletic Soccer Show, talking all things Arsenal today. We'll see you next week. Take it easy. Hey, baseball fans, this is Derek Van Riper. Now that spring training games are underway, opening day is just a few weeks away. Eno Saris and I have been getting ready for the season all winter on Rates and Barrels. Whether you're a seasoned fantasy player, a baseball stats junkie, or just someone who wants to learn more about the game, 
Join us for four episodes each week this season, including our new Friday live stream with former big leaguer Trevor May. Check out the live stream on Fridays at 1 o'clock Eastern on the Rates and Barrels YouTube channel, or listen to the show wherever you enjoy your podcasts, including the ad-free option on the Athletic app.